Thank you for tuning into our podcast, which is brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. We will do so with the understanding that history is often a matter of controversy. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past, in the hope of shedding some new light on how the present world came to be. In the studio today are our three co-hosts, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, Professor Ernie Tucker, and myself, Lieutenant Mac Anderson. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. Today, we will be discussing the top three most influential islands. To make our lists a bit more diverse and surprising, we've excluded Britain and Japan from consideration. They're so clearly influential, we wanted to uh, even the playing field for these lists. Each co-host will offer two contenders for the ultimate list. And then, after everyone has had their say, we'll narrow the list down from six to three. All right, gents, let's go island hopping. We'll start with Ernie, who's going to take us into the icy fjords of Iceland. Okay, Mac, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And I wanted to just take you away to one of my favorite islands, uh, Iceland, which uh, in many ways is kind of at the nexus of so much in world history. Um, in, in, in very ancient times, Iceland was formed uh, as the kind of junction between uh, the plates that are connected with North America and Europe. So it strides the plates. And of course, that has created Iceland as a volcanic miracle. Uh, really quite an incredible place. And on top of the volcanoes, of course, the frozen wonderland of the glaciers is there too. And, uh, you know, I can be a little bit of the Icelandic tourist board and say it's a wonderful place to visit. In history, uh, it's equally interesting and fascinating because it is the place, of course, that was uninhabited that became inhabited right around the year 900 or 800 of the common era. Um, uh, it, it seems that there were perhaps a few uh, itinerant Irish wanderers that were the first, quote-unquote, inhabitants of Iceland. But the real Iceland that we know today was started by the Vikings, right? And the Vikings came from Scandinavia uh, to Iceland, uh, set up shop in Iceland, and created a whole society in Iceland that uh, was a kind of an amazing uh, combination and blend of of, of fishing and farming and mining and all kinds of activities over many, many centuries. Perhaps the most notable moment of Iceland's existence, though, occurs uh, in its native son, Eric the Red's voyage from Iceland and, of course, to Greenland and then, of course, to North America, where he is one of the first people from Europe to come to the North American continent uh, in Newfoundland. Of course, Newfoundland is a, technically an island off the continent, but they also went on to the continent next to Newfoundland. Um, and so that's why I think Iceland is so important in the medieval period, because it, it's the memory of this uh, early discovery that people like Columbus and Amerigo Vespucci and all the people we think of as the early explorers actually built on. So that's Iceland's first kind of claim to fame. Well, second claim to fame. The first is being having great volcanoes. That's, you know, that's the, the second. The final uh, thing that's important is Iceland's, or the second to the last, I guess, is Iceland's role in, in, as the center of world fishing. Uh, 
It was the center of herring and uh, sardine and mackerel production for many, many, many years. And this, of course, these became canned versions of these fish were sent all over the world. And Iceland was the beating heart of this fish industry that was so, so important. Then the final thing that I think Iceland makes, makes Iceland so important is the uh, amazing sort of strategic role that it played in the, in the uh, 19th, 20th centuries and, and uh, culminating in the Cold War when Iceland became a very important part of NATO uh, in the Cold War uh, standoff between Russia and – between the Soviet Union really, not just Russia, but the whole Soviet Union – and uh, NATO and the United States. Um, it's, it's also very uh, touristically appropriate to mention that Iceland is the place where the end of the Cold War is thought to have been brokered between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in the late 1980s. There's a very beautiful little sea cottage that they met in and signed this treaty that essentially ended the Cold War. So that's all the different phases of the wonders of Iceland as I'm trying to make a case that it might be one of those really cool islands. Well, that's awesome, Ernie. And I'd like to imagine Reagan and Gorbachev just enjoying a nice Icelandic vacation together. It's just such, such a pleasant image of the Cold War, right? But for the Cold War, what made Iceland so strategic? What, what were some of the, the actual roles it played besides the, the nice little vacation that the two leaders took? Right. That's, of course, the, the strategic connection, particularly uh, with regard to the forward positioning of forces. And of course, the most famous one is the Keflavik Air Base. That's the, the base that was created by the United States. Uh, the United States built on what Britain had started in Iceland. Uh, Britain in the 19, in, during World War II uh, was very careful to uh, control Iceland. And they said, we're not taking you over, but we're going to control you in order to to, to stand against the Axis powers, particularly Nazi Germany. Um, but, but after the World War II, the United States saw this as a strategically important uh, nexus again, to use that word I think is really good, of air, air defense and forward projection of air reconnaissance. And it's interesting that that air reconnaissance mission from Keflavik apparently still goes on. It is not talked about very loudly, let's say, even after the Cold War, but it's a perfect positioning for all kinds of recon and all kinds of, of intelligence gathering near and around that whole part of the former Soviet Union, now the Russian Federation, which is still uh, a strategic uh, issue for so many people. So I think that's the, that's the bottom line of why Iceland in the 20th century and on into the 21st century continues to be very, very important. I had a question, Ernie, about uh, Iceland in the two world wars. Did it play any role at all in this uh, Atlantic convoy system? Mm -hmm. That's wonderful, Thomas. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the Atlantic convoys, you know, from North America on through to stopping in places like Iceland and then on through to Murmansk which was, of course, in, in the Soviet Union at that time, were very, very important. And, of course, it was a central location, uh, not only for the Air Force uh, side of things, but for the naval forces in terms of all of the German U-boats and all of the German. The Germans, of course, uh, had seized Norway pretty early in the war, and they were able to use that as a base to send U-boats out into the North Sea. And so Iceland was very, very important for that, and also, as you say, 
for those for those convoy missions that were so important in the resupply both of 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 the USSR and of Britain and the uh, let's say the Allied forces of World War II that would become NATO. I read somewhere today that uh, Iceland has no indigenous reptiles or amphibians. Mm-hmm. That's correct. It does have, interestingly enough, an indigenous uh, mammal, the Icelandic fox, which is, is very few indigenous, uh, you know, beasts. But there is this Icelandic fox. What's interesting, of course, is that there are br- things that have been brought in that are that have been brought in so long ago that they might as well be. They have been indigenized, right. as, as a phrase we could coin. Uh, for example, the Icelandic ponies. Uh, always a beloved – anyone who's a pony fan will love in particular the Icelandic ponies. Uh, the interesting point to be raised about all that is that flora and fauna that are there, you may not import any flora and fauna to Iceland now. So they're trying to keep it fixed. And that – that doesn't always get enforced totally. You know, you get secret shipments of ponies, I don't know, to, to, to ports on the outskirts of Iceland. But, but, but it is interesting. It is, it is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, place that's, that's separate in its own way. And it's interesting. has that wonderful quality to the flora and fauna. Well, plus the language has been, been preserved from the original Norse, more so than the Danish or Swedish languages. The language of Iceland is is unbelievably interesting because it, it is essentially original Norse. It's yeah. exactly what you said. It is the original Norse. And the Icelandic people are, are always very, very keen in a very Scandinavian way. They do it in a very quiet way. But they're keen to let you know that they are the true bearers of this Scandinavian, the poetic heritage of Scandinavia. These Danes and these Norwegians and Swedes, what do they know? We 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 are the keepers of the sagas. All the listeners will have heard about some of the sagas. But, you know, uh, when I was in Iceland recently, we, we, we read the sagas as we drove around in the car. And it was a great way to kind of feel that we were really in Iceland. You know, we did the English translation. Ernie, you're telling me you don't speak Icelandic? Uh, ja, ikke, ikke taler islandsk. <laughs> That's all I can. I don't speak Icelandic. Yeah, ikke taler islandsk. Yeah. So thanks so much uh, for asking me about Iceland. I thought it was interesting to share some stories. Uh, I also now would love to hear from Mac, who's going to tell us and talk to us about the Falkland Islands. Yeah, thanks, Ernie. Uh, we're going the opposite side of the globe uh, on this one. And the Falkland Islands, or the Mar- Malvinas, if you're Argentinian, was the focal point of the last major naval conflict since World War II, the Falklands War. This occurred between Great Britain and Argentina in 1982. The importance of the Falklands lies not in the geography, nor the economy, or even this idea of colonialism. Rather, the Falklands played a crucial role in the awakening of the modern Royal Navy to the realities of naval combat. While initial settlements were made in the Falklands by both Spain and Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries, both countries ultimately abandoned the islands by the early 1800s. Following independence in 1829, Argentina attempted to assert control over the abandoned islands. But surprise, surprise, the British deployed a small squadron of warships in 1833 to reclaim the islands for the British crown. Britain established the Falklands as a crown colony in 1840 and began shipping over settlers largely from Scotland to begin cultivating livestock. 
For over a hundred years, the Falklands remained essentially nothing more than a sleepy crown colony devoid of much drama, attention, or importance. But the post-colonial movement after World War II sparked calls for Argentina to once again reassert its claims to the land. The UN urged both Britain and Argentina to essentially negotiate between themselves to get to some kind of peaceful settlement. But as we know, oftentimes these colonial negotiations do not go without drama. Decades of rather weak negotiations ultimately collapsed during the Thatcher administration in the early 1980s. War broke out between Britain and Argentina in 1982 as the military-run Argentinian government invaded the islands, hoping to rally public patriotism and distract from the country's economic woes and a number of the terrible atrocities that the Argentinian government was committing against the public. The idea that Britain would respond militarily to such a strategically unimportant asset seemed unthinkable to the Argentinian government. To these leaders, the Falklands would be an easy victory. It would be a way to reassure the public that Argentina's military was capable of taking care of the country and asserting its dominance against the evils of Britain. But the British did respond. A task force under the command of Admiral Sandy Woodward, author of a really fantastic book on the subject, was dispatched to meet the Argentinian invasion head-on. During the 10-week conflict, the British faced substantial Argentinian resistance, resistance that had not been expected. The British struggled to combat the Argentinian air threat and lost a total of seven ships and 255 servicemen. While Britain walked away victorious, the country also walked away with a new appreciation for the realities of modern naval combat and the training that would be required to succeed in naval combat in the modern era. The experience of taking heavy losses against a nation which Britain viewed as a non-threat resulted in a significant change to British naval training. Most notably, the British system of Fleet Operational Sea Training, or FOST, incorporated a large number of lessons learned from the Falklands War. Today, FOST trains ships from almost all European nations, as well as a handful of American ships. My ship went through it twice when I was on board, and it is widely considered the best bar none, best naval training today. The ultimate impact of the Falklands was an evolution in modern naval training strategy. That's great, Mac. I just had a question about the repercussions of this war between Britain and Argentina. Um, from, from what little I know, uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, approval ratings were in, de in decline in Britain before this war took place. But then because of her rallying the cause of national resistance against this Argentinian aggression and the British ultimate victory in the struggle, they skyrocketed. Her approval ratings went through the roof and she was able then to have the political winds at her back to initiate or continue with her uh, other economic policies, such as the privatization of the British economy. So just any comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, and even though we may think, wow, Britain sacrificed seven ships over 250 men ultimately for an island that really had no importance other than cultural. We can think of it that way. 
But in Britain, uh, a large part of how it was thought about it was the reassertion of British dominance, of saying these are crown colonies. We will protect them no matter what. We will not back down. And of course, Margaret Thatcher gained the, uh, the moniker of the Iron Lady, right? Her will to stand strong against any threat, regardless of the actual value of a particular piece of land, uh, certainly seemed to be appreciated by the British public. Uh, this idea that they were done with weak leaders of labor, they were looking for a leader who would stand up and recognize British greatness, that unique sense of greatness that some Britons had felt was lacking in the post-World War II era. And Margaret Thatcher, through the Falklands campaign, really reasserted that sense of a special British purpose, uh, a, a commonality amongst all British citizens, regardless of whether they are on the aisle or whether they're in one of the crown colonies. Absolutely interesting topic. Um, I would like to shift uh, the questioning to the Argentinian side, because uh, I think that this was absolutely, you've made a great case that it was a pivotal moment uh, in British naval history and, and in the history of Britain in general in terms of national consciousness. Um, for Argentina, I think it was also really important. And I've read a little bit about the about the military governments and kind of the transfer to civilian authority that was very much uh, you know, influenced and, and and encouraged by the by the the downfall for the Argentinian point of view uh, in the in the in the Malvinas and the in the Falkland Islands, and maybe if you could if you, any thoughts that you might have on that. Absolutely, Ernie, and and for the Argentinian uh, the the military leadership, the results of the Falklands War were pretty much one eighty from what they were hoping for. Right, they entered this conflict thinking this will reassure our people that we are the right leaders, that we will assert Argentinian dominance. Plus, it'll also distract them from all the very, very bad stuff we've been doing. In reality, the Argentinian public sees this and they say, Wait, why did we do this again? Why did you get try to bait Britain into essentially coming over here? And they lose that faith. They lose what little faith they still had, right? And it simply uh, foments additional grievances against the government, ultimately leading to the start of that transition of power and the downfall of the Argentinian junta. And now we're going to turn to Africa for the first time this episode, uh, where Thomas will talk to us about the island of Zanzibar. Uh, thanks, Mac. Zanzibar is today an island chain off the coast of East Africa, the home of over a million people. What people don't always know is that it rose to prominence in the 19th century as the major commercial and political hub of the whole region. As the capital of a powerful Arab sultanate, Zanzibar town was the center of a highly lucrative as well as tragic and violent trade in ivory and enslaved persons stretching all the way to the Congo in Central Africa. Trading caravans coming from the coast brought new commodities like guns and American textiles in exchange for people and elephant tusks. The ivory was sold to India, Europe, and America. The slaves went to the Middle East or they were put to work in Zanzibar's clove plantations, for example. For a while, Zanzibar produced most of the world's supply of cloves, and for, that, and for this it became known as the Spice Island. From Zanzibar town, the largest and wealthiest city of East Africa, caravans spread Swahili across the region, so that today it is the most widely spoken language indigenous to Africa, with well over 100 million speakers. 
So before the 19th century, few regions were less connected to the world economy than East Africa. But because of the convergence in Zanzibar of imported guns, financial capital, enslaved persons, overseas migrants, and an Arab sultanate highly motivated to grow wealthy and powerful from trade, the whole region of East Africa would never be the same. I would love to hear sort of in a way the continuation, a little bit of the story into the 20th and 21st centuries in the sense that uh, the, the Zanzibar you describe does, there's a lot to be said for it being considered a, a pivotal center of a lot of activity. Uh, as we know, in the 1960s, Zanzibar became one of the pieces of a, of a new country called Tanzania. And of course, uh, Tanganyika was joined with Zanzibar. And I wonder if you could comment on maybe the, 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 the collective memory of the Zanzibar is about that and the feelings about that and how that how that connects to this larger historical sense of Zanzibar as a, as a sort of center of this whole region. Basically, there was a revolution in Zanzibar in January 64 where the African population rose up and overthrew a regime which they regarded as Arab, essentially. And there was a lot of violence associated with that. But the result was an African nationalist regime, which, as you pointed out, formed a federation with the mainland of Tanganyika to form the, the new country of Tanzania, which is just an amalgamation of those two names, Tanganyika and Zanzibar, from which you get Tanzania. One reason why the president of Tanganyika wanted to have this federation, because he was worried about Zanzibar becoming an outpost of the Cold War just off of his shores. In fact, the radical nature of this new revolutionary regime convinced many people it would become the Cuba of East Africa. So here's another sort of point of influence here. that The, the worry was that there would be a ripple effect, a domino effect, where Zanzibar would just infect so-called the whole region of East Africa with radical revolutionary Marxist dogma because there were rumors that the Soviets were going to build an airfield in Zanzibar, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing to point out. You asked about memory, for example. Well, the revolution kind of deteriorated into a sad, tragic story that we could spend a lot of time discussing, but there's a large number of people in the islands today that regret it ever took place. And so, as well as this union with the mainland. And so the mainland has become kind of the scapegoat for all of Zanzibar's problems. If only we weren't unified with these people, we could go at our, our own way and we could become wealthy, prosperous, et cetera, et cetera. Relive our glory days of the 19th century. So that's kind of the story that in a nutshell, what's going on. It's interesting that so far we've had uh, two islands, and I think more to come, connected to the Cold War in some way. It seems that islands really are, are playing an outsized role in the Cold War. Uh, but Thomas, what I wanted to know is, why Zanzibar? Why did the island develop so strongly compared to maybe some of the mainland ports on the coast of Africa? Yeah, well, really it was easily defensible. So the Omani um, sultanate that moved down from Muscat and actually re relocated to Zanzibar in the 1840s wanted a place from which they could dominate the whole coastline of East Africa um, in an easy fashion, so to speak. And so that was number one on their list. And from Zanzibar, they ended up conquering other towns like Mombasa, Malindi, et cetera, on the, on the coast of East Africa. Um, it was just convenient, more or less. And so with their control of Zanzibar, they required all of the trade of the region in ivory and slaves to be directed through Zanzibar town. So it became the marketplace for these commodities to be sold 
further abroad in some cases. And that concludes part one of the most influential islands. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll discuss three more entries and ultimately decide which islands deserve the moniker of the most influential islands. Until next time.